This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, that takes us back. Uh, Classic commercial. We're talking about Oscar Mayer, and it's just one of the well-known brands uh, under the Kraft Heinz umbrella. This is one of our big stock and business stories today. Let's just get right into it. Craig Giamana, he knows this world so well. Consumer reporter at Bloomberg News, follows the company for us, and has been talking about changes uh, in consumer taste for a long time here at Bloomberg. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Um, First of all, though, a $15.4 billion write-down. That is huge. It is. I mean, I've only been doing this for three, four, or five years, but I, I've never seen a number quite like that. And it's hard to imagine that it came to that all at once. You know, the auditors took a look in the fourth quarter like they normally do and basically said the carrying value of these brands, including the Kraft trademark and the Oscar Mayer trademark, which arguably their two most prominent brands are you know, essentially worth way less than you thought. And it's, it's just a sign, I think, of how this company has been managed. How is that worth defined so that it gets changed and it, and it results in a financial write-down? You know, it's on the books as part of the book value, the goodwill. It all is part of the deal. And, it, you know, some people are calling it financial engineering, that they hadn't recognized this before. But basically, the auditors got in there, looked at the margin performance in the second half of 2018 and said, going forward, these things aren't worth what you've said they're worth and you have to write it down. And $15 billion all at once is a lot. Yeah, it's really hard to believe, like you said, that this just showed up in the fourth quarter. That's right. I mean, th- these are kind of losses. I, mean, you, I I know Heinz from my days as a banker when they started to invest in Brazil in 2011. And they're investing in a country when the, the currency traded at uh, basically a couple of hundred percent lower in, than it is now. So that's part of the devaluation process and the loss that's on the books that's never showed up in the last seven years. That's right. It, like you said, it's hard to believe that all at once, $15 billion. I mean, when I saw that in the press release during earnings, I emailed the company to say, I want to make sure I'm reading this right. They're saying $10.34 per share on the diluted earnings. You just don't see numbers that are that big. And look, there was really three bad things in that earnings report. SEC subpoena, those words always spook investors. The earnings miss, which the 3G guys, if there's one thing they do, it's control costs. They missed on EPS, which even despite no sales growth there, they generally hit the EPS numbers because they know what they're doing with costs. Now they're saying, we didn't expect the costs. That's not a great sign. And then this write-down. So it was really a kind of a triple whammy for Kraft Heinz yesterday. I mean, the stock's down almost 28%, 34.75. We're down more than 13 bucks. And we talk about kind of the tremors. You mentioned the subpoena. We've had a bunch of analyst downgrades. We've talked about uh, the amount of money that Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett has lost, yep. 3G Global. Uh, these are the guys who put it all together. So first of all, shame on us. I mean, did we not see this coming? I feel like we've had these conversations that consumer taste, have changed and this whole idea that we don't go in the middle of the supermarket anymore. And look, we've been writing that, that their brands were out of step. Things like Maxwell House, right? People just drink better coffee now. I mean, they're not going to sell as much Maxwell House as you did in 1985. You're not going to sell as much Oscar Mayer as you did in 1985, despite them spending, you know, millions of dollars to make the hot dogs all natural. So the brands, we knew the brands were a problem, but the idea was that it really wasn't going to matter with Kraft Heinz because 3G was going to buy something else. So 2013, they buy Heinz, they fire thousands of people, they close the plants, industry-leading margins in 18 months. 
Okay, they come along, they buy Kraft for $60 billion. They slash out all the fat there. Two years later, they try to buy Unilever. It doesn't happen, and that's why we're sitting here now. Because if they had bought Unilever, we'd be talking about the cost-cutting they were doing at Unilever. And they need that to continue their model. They need to continue cutting fat and adding things. Unilever fell apart. The shares peaked at $96 the day, they, the, day the Unilever deal leaked. Think about where they are now. That's 60 bucks off those shares, right. all because that's basically the 3G premium coming out of the stock. It just sounds like a Fugazi business model. I mean, <laughs> but, you just but, keep buying to, to slash costs. Look, Wall Street loved it until they didn't, right. basically. Yeah, I guess. But cost-cutting does not create a great company with brands that people want to buy and a long-lasting empire. And that's been the argument about 3G this whole time. Because when they came into the food world, everyone, all the food companies said, oh, I better start cutting my costs. I don't want to get bought. So there was all this. Because the bottom line is that Kellogg, General Mills, Campbell, there is no sales gross for these guys. Mm-hmm. People are changing the way they shop, changing the way they eat. It's very difficult to sell this stuff that dominated grocery store shelves for decades. So when Kraft Heinz joined this industry, it sent shutters through the whole industry. But the problem is that they haven't been able to buy something else. And now the spotlight is on the sales. So, Craig, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little older than everyone here. This reminds me of Sunbeam and Chainsaw Al. And he would go along buying companies, buying you companies. You are dating yourself. I am. Because <laughs> okay. no one knows who that is. <laughs> and, and basically, the business model is to keep buying companies, cut costs, elevate, you know, show value in that. And then it caught up to him at some right. point and the stock collapsed. And look, the Kraft Heinz guys, if they were sitting here, they would deny this, that this was their plan. They would say, no, 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 no. We, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can cut the costs and we can build the brands. But obviously what we're seeing two years after Unilever collapsed, that there are some serious problems in this business. The $15 billion write down is an indictment of the way they've managed those brands. So what happens from here? Can we you know, guess? Can we speculate? Do well, they so, get rid of brands? Do they redefine the company? Do we need a Kraft Heinz? So the thing is, a big question here is what Buffett is thinking, because Buffett has given these guys cover. His stamp of approval has kind of given a cover to the ruthless stuff that they do, close plants, fire people. And he has also financed these deals. Mm -hmm. So if the argument is they have to buy something else without the bank of Buffett, that is a big time problem now, especially with the shares under 40 bucks. You know, the credit agencies are looking at this. They're being downgraded. So they don't really have as much firepower on the books as they did before the shares plummeted. So all a big question as to what Buffett thinks about this. And we might find out more this weekend. And that's what I was going to say, right? We're going to get that Buffett uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder uh, notice letter uh, over the weekend. What would you want to know from Buffett? Just got about 30 seconds. What would you ask? What he thinks about the future of these brands. You know, he is recently as, um, you know, a year ago, he was saying, just give them some more time. The organic growth is coming. So he's backed these guys the whole time. Obviously, he's talking his book, right? But I'd like to know what he thinks of these brands and whether there's any chance to save this. And and can he step in and do more? I mean, this is his credibility on the line. And look, a a lot of people are pointing out the shares are at a discount right now. Maybe he buys more. Does he double down on kind of these old, tired brands? He loves classic American brands, right? That's why he's in there. So we'll just have to see what, what he thinks. And a lot of those brands have done well, but it's interesting to see what's happened here. That's right. All right, Craig Giamona, love you, love you. Thank you so much. Great reporting uh, and certainly one of the big, as I said, stock and business stories that we're following. Craig Giamona is consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. He follows the company for us. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. a little bit about Hollywood, because don't forget, you've got the Oscars on Sunday. we got a couple of uh, stories in the entertainment media world that we've got to get to. 
uh, and that our own entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News, Anusha Sakui, is covering. Uh, she joins us from our bureau in Los Angeles. Anusha, nice to have you here with Vince and myself. Let's talk about this fascinating story um, that you've uh, written about a socially conscious production studio and billionaire looking to kind of reap Oscar gold this weekend. Who are we talking about? What's going on? Get into it for us. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, this Sunday is the Oscars. I'll be there with my colleagues at Bloomberg uh, backstage um, in the press room waiting for the winners to come back and report for you guys. Can I just so say, that is that a blast? It's, it is. I think it's we have the most fun in the press room because I think it's only for us that the show goes fast. Everybody else, I feel like they feel those three to four hours. But, you know, I enjoy it. I'll say that. I think it's fun. Uh, we get to ask some questions, but um, and this weekend I think it's going to be all up in the air, so it's going to be full of surprises. But um, so talk about this guy, yeah, yeah. So Jeff Skoll is the billionaire uh, founder of, of this company called Participant, and he, um, you know, is a former eBay executive, and he started this company to kind of back uh, movies with um, a, a message, a sort of social issues, like um, you know, uh, well, as as is in the film Roma, uh, which is pretty much their biggest uh, bet this year and is up for um, several awards, but most notably Best Picture. Um, but they also are a backer of Green Book, which is which has not only done well at the box office, but has also been a, uh, you know, it's up for, for five nominations to, uh, on Sunday. You, I think you played that down, how much fun it's being in the press room, by the way. <laughs> Like, that was I mean, really tame. know about the after parties. Oh, it was really calm. Yeah, the after parties. Where do you go afterwards? Are you part of that? Well I, well, I get invited to some, but not that much. I mean, you know, I think they like to keep those things pretty. They like to keep the press out of them, except for, like, photographers. That's my takeaway. Fair enough. Um, you know, so they keep those people, like, outside to get the nice quotes and stuff. I have been invited to one or two in the past. But honestly, you know, for us, it's a long day. You're uh, sending, you know, you're reporting on it, and uh, we get there, you know, about, two or three o'clock to set up and we wait for everyone to come backstage and it's and you're kind of watching two things you know you're watching the show and the red carpet and there's so much going on i mean you know the red carpet will be political will be obviously interested in like people make taking message you know sending messages not just through what they say in interviews on the carpet but they've also used what they wear pins and whatnot so also looking out for stuff like that and the show this year will be very different because not only will we have the hollywood types but the producers this year are going outside of hollywood you know we're going to get Serena Williams. Um, we're getting uh, different people that are not usually part of the uh, the Hollywood lineup. So I think these are the kinds of things that are, uh, are keeping us busy. And um, you know, it, it's it is a blast. It is a blast. I won't I won't play it down. Well, Fair you enough. know, and it's interesting. You're right because if you think about the last couple of years, about the Me Too presence, certainly uh, at the Oscars and other big award shows, uh, diversity, pay parity. I mean, these have really come front and center, and you often see it in the acceptance pieces, uh, speeches where either producers right. or actors are talking about out. So this this individual, Jeff Skoll, I mean, and what he's doing, this socially conscious studio, is it a growing trend? It's definitely, see, I mean, they have been prolific and they've done super well with it. Um, we've seen also Lorene Powell Jobs, who, yes. um, you know, I... I she probably first became known as, you know, the widow of, uh, of Steve Jobs, but really has kind of come into her own as a sort of philanthropist investor in media. She's got her own, um, you know, her documentary film studio that we've written about for Bloomberg and also, you know, just yesterday invested with uh, Peter Chernin's Otter Media into uh, Hello Sunshine, which is the production company of, of Ruth Witherspoon. And then people like uh, eBay co-founder Pierre Omidyar, who's very, 
you know, uh, very, I want to say political. You know, he backed uh, a lot of investigative journalism outlets like The Intercept. Um, and so there, there those 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 people and you know Fred Smith even um, the the FedEx uh, mm-hmm. CEO he's backed films that have these kind of social messages so there are people out there that have have used their money to uh, back these these films Spotlight an Oscar winner that was backed by Omidia and participant um, so you know potentially there's a lot of there's a lot of success uh, financially and also you know critically and I guess philanthropically if you think about the message that they're getting across. So, Anusha, is like, obviously this is something of a trend. Is it the beginning of a trend or the middle of a trend? I mean, clearly not the end of a trend. Just got yeah. about 20 seconds here. Yeah, no, it's been happening for a little while. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, part the participant has been doing this for a little while. I mean, even back to the help uh, a few years ago. And uh, but I think they're sort of like building up. A, they're building up ahead of steam and, and more people are getting into it. And, and I think you're finding people are f- like people with a lot of money are finding this power in, in getting getting their message across to people uh, who go to the movies. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just going to tell you, Vince goes to the movies because he wants to see, when he goes, he doesn't go off and he wants to see things blown up or be entertained. Kind of. I like to be moved <laughs> I mean, a little bit. I like a little bit of both. I, 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 I don't know why. I feel like I need to get something out and it's crying usually. I, I don't know what that says. I've, I've been you. known to shed a tear or two in the movies. Stop that's a, it. That's good. Anusha Sakui, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News, LA Bureau. Check out also her story on Murdoch's. Uh, I'll put it out on Twitter. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We know Vince 29 was, I know you love the song. Okay, okay, but we got to move on. I'm just going to say. <laughs> so 2019 was eagerly anticipated for some of those unicorn IPOs that would finally, finally become public. Just this week, we heard from Pinterest, uh, and they're expected to file confidentially for its uh, IPO valuation of about $12 billion. Then you've got Lyft. We're talking about yes. maybe a valuation of, uh, I think, uh, I don't have the number. Here. I can't believe I don't have it. But anyway, the other one is Uber, and we're talking about 120 billion. So we're talking about finally maybe some of these IPOs uh, hitting the market and becoming public entities. Let's talk about it with Jeff Grabo. He's America's venture capital leader at Ernst and Young, based in San Jose, California, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And yeah, if you went, you know, late last year, this was going to be one of the big themes of 2019. And then when the markets fell apart, everybody got a little worried. But nonetheless, we're starting to see it leak out. IPOs, they will be coming. They will. Yes, they will. It's that, that's going to be one thing that leads 19. Uh, 2018 was a phenomenal year. You know, we had $138 billion put to work, which crushed whatever we saw in terms of uh, what was put to work in the venture space in the uh, dot-com era. And so... And, well, uh, get your head around that, everybody. Just sit with that, right? Because yeah, dot-com well, was so really nutty, amazing. right? Yeah, and and so, well, a big trend that drove that, which is something that's also you'll be interested to get your head around, was it was driven by mega rounds. So, and we define a mega round as any company that's raised a hundred million dollars or more. There were two hundred and twenty-one companies that raised a hundred million dollars or more in two thousand eighteen, which is significant it's to say the least. Up from one hundred and twenty-nine the year before, right? And if you do the math, that's there's two hundred sixty-one working days. In a year. That's almost $100 million deal a day for a year in the venture space. Where is all the money coming from? Or, or rather, not where it's coming from, uh, per se, to do, the tr- to do these deals. But what's, who's the loser on this end? Because if it's going into all this IPO, it's got to be coming out of somewhere. Well, the money, so and you were talking about a little bit of yields and whatnot. So we, we've been in a historic low-yield environment. And what's happened is 
to get yield, investors have had to assume more risk, and that has pushed a ton of capital into the venture space. So other asset classes are buying down, and that has ballooned the amount of capital that we've seen what's been in comparison. Right. We talk about, you know, whether it's family wealth offices, whether it's, you know, pick your institutional investor, right? In that, you know, seeking yield, they have moved into other areas and big time in terms of providing money for startups and venture. Yeah, because you go back probably seven or eight years and we wrote something on this that, you know, what you, if you looked at other asset classes, you know, IPOs at that time were crushing other asset yields. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these sophisticated investors buy in you know, across multiple asset platforms. And so many of them buy IPOs. And so what they decided to do is say, hey, why, instead of just buying the IPO, why don't we buy a little earlier? And maybe we'll get more in the IPO. So in general, as you say, they're chasing risk, if you will, to to get yield. Vis-a-vis the rest of the stock market, how how have these performed? I mean, investors made the right decision by putting money into, into IPOs, if you will? Well, I mean, that's, IPOs are an interesting uh, phenomena in an interesting asset class, you know, and, and they're not for everybody. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I think year to date last year, IPOs were a pretty good bet. Our IPO, Bloomberg IPO index was up 5% last year. Okay. Eh. <laughs> not, not to, and I'm trying to see what was going on. Um, is that right? Let me just see. It's better uh, than my track record. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> actually, forgive me. That's for 2017. So let me see if I can get the, um, I don't know why I don't have the 2019. But yeah, I think you were right that yeah. it was a better year last yeah, and year. That, and so what happens is when yields are up and those markets, you know, more buyers come in. Sure. And so, and you do have large buyers, you know, it's just not mom and pops that are buying it. There's large institutions that buy significant positions in these sure. that actually mom and pops have exposure to on a de minimis basis through, you know, um, mutual funds and other types of things, and other types of in, uh, instruments. Well, it's interesting, too. I also do wonder, and now the Renaissance IPO ETF, it was actually down 17.5% last year. And I'm thinking that they probably, if you take into account that December month, really kind of changed the overall indices. So maybe some of it was then. I'd have, I'd have to take a look and just see how yeah, we in did. In terms of what the history was. But, you know, and, and we are in a volatile uh, environment. Yeah, it was up about 29% if you took it, I think, till a little bit early. Sorry, I'm just playing yeah, around with the numbers. That's okay. So, uh, so what I am curious about is because there's so much money flowing around, Jeff, I mean, it does allow – I do wonder about the IPOs that ultimately come to market. Are they stronger? Are they healthier? Well, these companies are much older than they were. You, know, you compare – everybody loves to compare dot-com era versus today. And the companies today have, have significant top-line numbers, and they've been around for quite some time, and they've got – you know, they've got some real beef to them. And, and it gets to be more of a question of how, how much is there there versus is there a there there? And, you know, back in the dot-com era, it was a, you know, basically a lot of these IPOs were public venture capital. Right. And now it becomes a bet on, okay, how big will these companies be? And can they, with the girth and the breadth and the meat that they've put on the bone, can they get to be profitable? So you've mentioned, essentially, will it slow down? What is 2019 going to look like? Are we going to keep going at that 2018 pace, or we're starting to hit a wall somewhere? Well, I mean, nothing can continue to go up and to the right forever. True. And so I would find, you know, looking forward into 2019, I would find it hard to believe we would beat 2018. But I think 2019 can be a fairly substantial year for a variety of reasons. One is we talked about the IPOs. That is going to shine. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to see some significant companies go public in the next six months. That's, and I, that's going to shine a bright light on the asset class, and there's going to be some real money returned to investors. And so that's going to keep that 
piece of the equation going. What's the next round? Like after we get through the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Pinterests, uh, and a few others, Airbnb, what are the ones that are kind of, what's the next round of, no, I'm just curious, like what are you looking at? Because we've been looking at these, I feel like, for so long and have talking about them. Well, I mean... Or even just industries, like where you're seeing kind of interesting developments. Well, there's a lot going on in fintech. There's a lot going, you know, in... Healthcare, the, I'm assuming. With the technology enablement of industries, which is also another tailwind that's helping to push all this money into venture capital and also helping to transform areas like New York, which, you know, was not a big venture capital place, but now it's got a significant uh, startup, and e- startup ecosystem and environment. Do you get nervous at all about in terms of the, the market volatility? We've certainly seen increased volatility in the last year or so. How does that impact what we're seeing in terms of the VC world, or does it just operate separately? Well, these are 10-plus-year asset classes, so it, they don't correct day-to-day, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, year-to-year. These are long-term asset classes. You know, There was $55 billion raised into venture funds last year to be deployed over the next 10 years. So there is significant dry powder now. If a substantial event or uh, nuclear winter were to happen economically, yeah, people will slow down. But there's also the old adage of, hey, a recession is never a better time to start a company and to put money in the ground. Right. And venture capitalists, man, got to put it to work, right? Yeah. Otherwise, exactly. their I mean, investors get frustrated. <laughs> well, they are on a timetable to deploy capital. And so, you know, so the IPOs are going to be one thing. You know, there is a significant number of companies out there. You know, they're, we're tracking over 18,000 venture-backed startups in the U.S. that have raised over half a trillion dollars wow. at book value. So, you know, when you look at the pipeline, there's a lot to be fed there. So mm. regardless of what happens, a lot of these companies are going to need to raise capital, so they will be coming back to market, you know. And to your point, Vince, earlier, you know, uh, up and to the right forever, um, you know, people are starting <laughs> to think about, well— you know, it, it won't go up into the right. So should we start to think about being prepared for something? And so we're starting to hear about investors talking about, hey, we have other investors who want to come in. Why don't we do a preemptive round and just sit on it just to make sure what, what there's nothing wrong with having nine to 12 months of cash? Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. How do you how do um, how do you hedge that bet? So if you're an, an initial investor, do you sort of let other people in and sell some of your shares to, to hedge that, if you will, and, and just let more people in and spread your risk out? Well, that would be, that would be secondaries. Right. And I know, I'd actually have friends in the angel market who have done that, who have taken money off the table. Um, but primarily what it's doing is just, there, there'll be some dilution, especially because a lot of these are going to be growth rounds, which mm-hmm. will be substantial amounts. And certain of these investors that we talked about that are buying down or from other asset classes will want to have a certain slug of capital. And so, and that also may give founders and employees an opportunity to get a little bit of liquidity out of this because, you know, by the way, you know, they've been tied up a long time too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. I, I do also wonder, Jeff, and one of the things that we had, a story in the magazine, this was a while ago, but it did talk about how technology, whether it's um, uh, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, how it's made it cheaper and easier for venture capitalists to really look at kind of more companies and even those that they might normally just even pass on or not even give a glance at that through technology, they're able to kind of look at some of those smaller deals and, a, and assess them pretty quickly say, okay, so I can throw a little bit of money at that. Cause it's not costing that much in terms of my analysis, you know, kind of in the lead up to it, to that investment. Are we seeing a lot more of that happening? And I just wonder if that is creating more churn and more money going into various startups. 
Well, I've, I've met a couple of funds recently, actually, that are doing, that are using those kinds of technologies to help analyze things. And which is fascinating because it used to be, you know, go with your gut. There used to be these old adages that you would go. And now you're talking about saying, hey, I'm just going to put a bunch of inputs in and blindly right. trust what comes out. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, you know. Um, you know, I've got Vince's haircut and yeah. so we're, um, I'm just, I'm just sitting there thinking like, I've got wallpaper of some of the things that I invested in for the same reason. You know, and so that seems kind of very antithetical to what I've believed or have been experienced right. to, but those types of things, you know, if you could run 10,000 instances through something and say, can I pattern match and can I pattern match accurately versus just. Right retroactively going back and recreating, you know, recreating the story a little bit to say, this is why this worked. Um, I am always curious when we get somebody, of course, we're here in New York, our main studio here at Bloomberg radio, uh, coming from San Jose. What are the conversations you guys are having? I mean, we're obviously consumed with us, China trade, the Amazon pullout was a big deal. And I'm just curious when you go back home, what is the things, you know, that, that you're finding that are, people are really preoccupied when it comes to the investment environment, when it comes to the political environment, uh, investment environment, you know, th- there is a conversation around uh, what is the first domino. People are starting to think about, you know, if there if something happens, what is it? Right. I was at a dinner a couple of weeks ago, and that was like the, the table con- side conversations of, okay, you know, and everybody's got a different belief because I want to get ahead of it. So that is a big thought that's out there right now in terms of, hey, what what's what next? It, what what will be the first domino to hit that I need to be aware of or think about? And if it does, what do I do? Great stuff. Have a great weekend. Jeff Grabo over at Ernst and Young. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Jeff Crumpleman is Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Jeff joining us uh, once again on the phone from Cincinnati. Jeff, good to have you here. It is turning out to be a rather busy Friday. A lot of corporate news, but also a lot of trade news. Um, Tell me what you find most interesting and most relevant to the investment climate right now. Well, you know, I, I was in New York, and we were talking, you know, in person in the studio back then when everyone was extremely pessimistic and just uber-pessimistic. And I think uh, we were, you know, pretty loud and, and, and vocal about saying folks had just this – this has gotten uh, just overdone, and fundamentals were strong, valuations very attractive. We're looking for nice things in the early part of the year. And so we quickly went from – Worst December since 1931 in the market to best January since 1987, and quite frankly, we're not surprised by that. I think we were well positioned for that, and and right now I'd say you know we're likely to see a bit of a pause after a rally like that. You could uh, see a little bit of retrenchment, but we feel very good about uh, things. And the bottom line would be, I would say, folks were kind of expecting earnings to go from great to horrible. We felt like they would go from great to okay, which is kind of what we're getting. And that can be a very nice uh, environment for stocks. 
sorry, you're painting a little bit of a Goldilocks picture, maybe, like, you know, earnings sort of right in the middle of the pike, better than what people expect, but not absolutely spectacular. And at the same time, the Fed is on hold. It, it, it does sound like the perfect place for an investor to be. No, I would say, and, you know, this is a uh, market of stocks. It's not a stock market. And when you have individual stocks that are trading at uh, eight, nine, ten times earnings at the individual stock level, uh, just a great time for active portfolio management. At the macro level, I do think, you know, what's in the news today, you've got uh, Mr. Trump uh, talking about progress that's happening on China. Certainly the Fed has been in the news. And again, going back to the end of the year, people were just uh, assuming worst-case outcomes on both of those wall of worry fronts. And we just didn't think that that, that made sense. Uh, parties were, were very motivated, both the Fed and both parties on trade, to, to come to better than worst-case outcomes. And I think that that's what we're seeing playing out. But I want to add to that that it's not all about the Fed. Folks seem to want to say in the headlines that the only reason the market is up is because the Fed is signaling that they're going to pause. Let's look at the, the, the data that's come out, 300,000 you know, new jobs on the payroll front, uh, pretty healthy manufacturing numbers, uh, earnings that were strong in Q4, and yes, they're going to moderate. But, but wait, wait, know. wait, Jeff, because I just think about a conversation we had. I mean, safe to say the Fed did quite the 180 from what we got late last year to earlier this year. And it certainly has been supportive of the markets. Because if the Fed had come out and said, nope, 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 we're going to keep on raising rates, I don't think we'd be where we are today. Oh, no, no, I agree with you on that. But to say that that's the only reason why the market's up, I don't think is, uh, is realistic at all either. Uh, if you had the Fed saying, I'm going to be on hold, but you had us moving towards recession, the market would, um, I think, with good reason, be down and stay down. So the combination of the Fed saying, hey, well, we're moderating. We've tried to say that we're going to be data dependent. Maybe we didn't say that as well as we should have. But let's make it clear, we are going to be data dependent, uh, combined with still solid, albeit moderating, data. That's a nice cocktail. But if you don't have mm. the data there, Fed can do whatever it wants to do, and it's like pushing on a string. On, on, the, on the data front, not so solid. What's your take on retail sales? And a question I ask you, you, you like financials, and you like them broadly. Why? Well, we'll start with the first question maybe about retail sales. I think that there's just some kind of disconnect. It it doesn't make any sense to me when you have Target, Walmart, and others that are reporting, you know, nice traffic, nice same-store sales growth. Um, there's just no way that retail sales were as weak as the data uh, came out for uh, December. So I think that there's just some glitch in, in the data for whatever reason. And we'll know, and, right? Because we're going to start hearing from a bunch of other retailers next week. So we'll get either some confirmation of what we got from Walmart and Target and some others. We will, but those, those alone are a lot of the market right there. So mm -hmm. I do think when you, you paint the mosaic and you look at the other data, it's stronger. E even in the ISM data, the, the flash data that came out, uh, it looks like the pace of the economy is, is pretty solid. So I, I would be surprised with employment as strong as it is that uh, that retail sales isn't kind of a, just a, a glitch of some sort. And then your second question on financials, you know, we do like financials. Um, we're, we're 
market weight financials at this point in time, and I think we own a nice blend. We've been disappointed that they haven't contributed more. Um, we've been, I think, tilted towards cyclicals, and that would include other areas that will do well um, in a you know, still-growing economy. And it's really been the industrials and the technology and the consumer discretionary that have contributed. Um, but that said, the financials that we do own, um, several of them are up. You know, Bank of America is up a nice 18 19% so far this year, and we've gotten a bounce. I still think they will be challenged, though, mm. with the shape of the yield curve. And um, we've got a nice bounce and rally. I think some of these other cyclical areas might outperform, um, you know, financials on, on a go-forward basis. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially with Fed uh, Clarida talking about potentially trying to manage the yield curve today. One, one more for you. I'll give you a chance to change your mind, maybe. Do you still like CVS? <laughs> Well, yeah, we do. I guess we're taking a longer-term view on, on CVS. Um, yeah, I think I gave you a, a list of maybe a dozen stocks. You, you did, and I had to point that one out because I'm giving you a chance to say you don't like them anymore. <laughs> uh, no, I think, you know, the, the, you look at valuations around eight or nine times, and w- what they did was just show that they do have to continue to invest um, in their businesses, and that, that slowed earnings growth and, and the guy down. Uh, was a little disappointing. It may take longer, but we do think that they're well positioned in delivery of healthcare. The synergies they get through um, Aetna and their retail stores. We do think that um, it's a good longer-term story for delivery of healthcare. All right, and gonna, very cheap. I'm going to leave it on that note. Uh, shares of CVS, by the way, they are mm, just down about half a percent, but lost about three percent in yesterday's session. All right, Jeff, thank you so much, Jeff Grumpelman, Chief Investment Strategist. He's Director of Equities over at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.